0: Whereas philosophy is certainly not self-expression. And philosophy, of course, is argument. Uh, And you can say, well, is the conclusion true or is the argument valid? Welcome to Five Questions, where we don't ask if the conclusion's true or the argument valid, but what they say about you. I'm your host, Kieran Setia. In each episode, I ask a philosopher five questions about themselves. There are two ground rules. One is that follow ups are allowed, the other is that the question I'm about to ask doesn't count as one of the five. So, could you introduce yourself, tell us a bit about who you are, and what kind of philosophical work you do?
1: Yes, I'm Barry Lamb. I am an associate professor of philosophy at Vassar College. My work in academic philosophy started out in epistemology and the philosophy of language. Uh, I'm not a prolific publisher by any means. The stuff that I've written concerns the justification of belief, some issues about disagreement and probabilities, some essays about semantics and pragmatics of natural language. Um, probably more recently, I've been more interested in applied issues in ethics and social and political philosophy, um, particularly how considerations in metaphysics and epistemology affect the morality of certain public policies. And I came to all of this by doing more public-facing work. So probably most people know me as the producer and host of Hi-Fi Nation, which is a kind of storytelling philosophy podcast at Slate. Uh, I think my job in that podcast is to connect philosophy with stories from everyday life, from law, from science, from the arts, and so forth.
0: Well, it's really great to have you here, Barry, in part because uh, I love HiFi Nation and I love podcasts in general. And that has been an inspiration for this podcast, not because this is very similar. uh, It's not sort of narrative in the way HiFi Nation is, but uh, because you've been incredibly helpful in telling me how to start my own podcast. So uh, you you bear a little bit of the responsibility for the, uh-huh. the existence of this whole thing. I'm going to start us off as always with a question from Iris Murdoch, our first question. So it begins with a quote. She wrote, to do philosophy is to explore one's temperament, and yet at the same time to attempt to discover the truth. So does your temperament Influence your philosophical thinking, and if so,
1: how? This is a really hard question for me because I'm not quite sure how to characterize my own temperament. I feel like other pe- thats one of those things that other people are a lot better at knowing than than yourself. I, I would say that my temperament is quite complicated. I think throughout my earlier, my younger years. My teenage years, my 20s, there was this feature of myself, which I only see bubbling up now. It's not a major feature of who I am, but it was a kind of anti establishment kind of temperament. You know, the kind like uh, I was the kid in high school who would complain about things about what the principal or the administration was doing. You know, I voted for Ralph Nader. (laughs) 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 i like i like um i like um even so the way it bubbles up is like to this day i like people like you know like an 04 or whatever it was i like like dennis kucinich you know i like um uh this time around um i was a big fan of andrew yang and (laughs) to some extent tulsi gabbard i but so that's politically but you know just generally speaking you know i i feel like when I get in, I wouldn't say trouble, but, you know, like even have a respectable job I'm a professor. But if I start butting heads with administration, I feel it bubbling up. There's a kind of weird teenage rebellious joy I get from squaring off against establishment figures. And I, that, 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 that is a part of my temperament. It was a bigger part. It may have played a big role in my early philosophical development, you know, because most people who get into philosophy get into it in college, right? That's probably true for you.
0: I I was actually in it was in high school that I started reading philosophy but it was yeah it was college was the point at which it really became cemented.
1: Yeah. And so 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 it was so that probably influenced a lot of philosophy I was I was raised in um I went to UC Irvine which has a department uh, logic and philosophy of science and that's where I got most of my philosophical education and that department at the time and and probably even more so today I think of as a kind of like a rebellious department in the sense that, you know, the issues that they work on are not really the issues of mainstream philosophy. And I didn't know what mainstream philosophy was really at the time, but they're kind of a really naturalized science philosophy of science kind of applied. Um, a lot of applied philosophy, a lot of like, like they do mathematical modeling or game theoretic modeling of things. Right. And I was raised there. I, I, that, that was um I don't know if that's a manifestation of my temperament the the other thing that I, that I have which is maybe completely incompatible with the anti-establishment character of of my temperament is I have a lot of self-doubt and insecurity <laughs> mm-hmm. and that really manifests in a heavy dose of skepticism about both the quality of my own work and also whether I should, stick to what I believe <laughs> in philosophy, right? So the final thing that I ha- think is part of my temperament is just a, you know, I, I've discovered in recent years that I'm probably more of a generalist than a specialist. Uh, you're kind of forced to be a specialist when you're younger, when you're in graduate school. But, you know, I think that comes from just broad range curiosity, right? I think I've come to be curious about so many things outside of philosophy, like you know, the natural world, law, you know, music, things like that. And for a long time, that didn't play any role in the philosophy that I did professionally. And I think Hi-Fi Nation is probably one of the attempts to try to bring that all back in.
0: I mean, do you think of Hi-Fi Nation as itself rebellious? Is, does it have a, does it feed into that anti-establishment mentality or, or not?
1: Yes and no. As something that you do within academia, it's a little rebellious. W- would you agree, Karen? I mean, yes. Academic- oh, yeah. No.
0: I, yeah. I Especially to devote to it the amount of time and energy you have to do it, not just as a little side project, but to really invest one's identity in it.
1: Yeah, and and it it's kind of started like that. It kind of started like I when i started i just realized you know most of my profession and my career and the people who uh, are gatekeepers are going to think this is stupid and a waste of time and it it just does, it wouldn't contribute to career development at all um it's not something that people are awarded even esteem which is not you know so that's one way of looking at it i think another way of looking at it is that i actually think of hifi nation as a podcast is quite conservative. And so I think it's a little part of the self-doubt and insecurity is that of, the, I, I've The genre in which I'm in is a genre that if you listen to the kind of shows that I admire, it's my show sounds a lot like them. So I haven't really rebelled that much. You know, the, my show doesn't sound like a strange piece of avant-garde art, for instance, which I think that if I was even more strongly anti-establishment it would be. I would say, "Hey everybody, this is philosophy and also it's it doesn't sound like anything else that's out there. It's going to be audio and it's going to be artistic and I don't care what anybody thinks." Right? There's a sense in which the insecurity about <laughs> the insecurity manifests in, but I still want lo- tons and tons of people to listen to it. Okay? So like let me make sure that it sounds like the kind of thing that I think a lot of people would want to listen to. And then the, the other aspect of my personality, the generalist curiosity side, obviously comes through.
0: Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, on the one hand, it it, it is your first podcast, right? So it, it, oh, is that true? Is it your first? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so it, there's always room to do the, the avant-garde, unintelligible podcast <laughs> next. I mean, its timing is very interesting, too, in terms of professional reception, because I think the time... How long have you been doing it? Five years?
1: This is the... Yeah, I've been doing it five years. This is the fourth season, but yes, I did start. Like,
0: I mean, that five-year period has been one of very dramatic change, I think, in the profession of philosophy, in people's attitude towards public-facing work. And I mean, there's a kind of feedback thing here. I mean, I think Hi-Fi Nation played a role in that, but I think the perception of it probably 10 years ago will be quite different from what the perception of it now and five years from now will be in that. I think philosophers are much more appreciative. Professional philosophers are much more appreciative of work that isn't inward-looking.
1: Yeah, I hope you're right. I don't know. I I can't really gauge my whether my sense of professional philosophy is correct. I I don't know whether that is. You know, uh, it's it's not the largest field, but it's quite large. And 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 I don't know. I you know a lot of people's senses of things come from maybe graduate school or their early career um, and maybe that's out of date so but my own sense is probably what you're considering like 10 years ago but I don't know I yeah uh, I'm not sure
0: I mean there'll be a real question what about the ways in which this kind of work is valued it's one thing to value it in the sense of not disapproving of it and even admiring and appreciating it it will be another step to start to think about how to value this kind of work in tenure and promotion decisions and in the sort of professional hierarchy of philosophy but that uh, I mean that's another kind of um, I don't know that's inside baseball for the profession I suppose but it is it yeah. is on my mind as the profession and higher uh, higher education changes but yeah. I'm gonna I'm gonna move us on to question two so sure. question two is also about philosophy kind of a big picture question. So what do you think are the the virtues and vices of philosophical thinking of sort of approaching the world as a philosopher?
1: I have spent the last 5 years talking one-on-one long form to more philosophers than I had spoken to in the previous decade. And it's kind of emerged it's emerging to me that philosophers are a distinctive kind of thinker, even if outside of their professional lives, they are very different kinds of people, right? Uh, Their interests are very different. I I use this quotation when I give talks. Um, The author, Michael Lewis, who I admire a lot, has this quote about academics in in general, which is that, um, I'm just going to paraphrase the quote now, when they speak and when they write, they are not trying to bring joy to their audience or readers. They're trying to survive them. I like that <laughs> right. that's right. and i I actually think when I read that, I thought that's probably true of academics in general. It is just it's it's kind of like a, like the perfect characterization of a philosopher. It seems to me, I like, at least those of us raised in an analytic philosophy, like that so much of your training and your education is about how well you are as a survivor um, yeah. of people going after you, right? And, and here's what I think comes out of that kind of training, virtues and vices of thinking philosophy. I think that there is a strange mix of overconfidence and skepticism that um, is not... <laughs> always compatible sometimes i think it's a toxic mix of that depending on depending on the individual so philosophers i do this all of the time speak in anticipation of objections yeah and i think they think in anticipation of objections and i think they can't st- help but think in anticipate in anticipation of objections even if they're not thinking about things philosophically i think even creatively i find myself Thinking in anticipation of objections or problems that people have. It's not. It's not universal, Karen. Right. It's not. Oh yeah. Yeah. It's not a feature of most people and most ways people train.
0: Yeah, I think the way this this became most vivid to me was trying to write uh, my book about midlife, which was a general audience book, and realizing that the editorial voice in my head was so different. I think I had not realized how specific the editorial voice. I had in my in the back of my mind when I was doing philosophy was that it was always well, aren't you? Shouldn't you distinguish X and Y, or what about these objections? Whereas the editorial voice when I was trying to write to entertain, or at least partly to entertain, was this is boring. The, <laughs> where are the jokes? You know, yeah. and it, I it really made vivid to me in a way I hadn't realized how much of a distinctive professional formation philosophy is.
1: That's right, and. S- so I think that one this manifests, so it's it's both a virtue and a vice, right? This, this constant way of thinking in anticipation of people attacking you in various ways. One thing I think it does is it tempers overconfidence, which I think is a virtue. Uh, I think it's a big virtue for a lot of people and in a lot of areas. But paradoxically, I think it gives philosophers, it's a tendency, we're talking, you know, um, probabilities here, right? So it gives certain philosophers an overconfidence in a particular kind of ability of theirs, which is an ability as a critic, as a as a destroyer of someone's reasoning in some area that you may not know anything about. Um, I've noticed this tendency among philosophers uh, that there's this strange <laughs> mix between them being able to temper overconfidence in some things and being way overconfident in your abilities as a critic in some ways. No,
0: yeah, I think that's exactly <laughs> right. Yeah. So having talked a bit about the virtues and vices of being a philosopher, the philosophical training, here's question 3. If you weren't a philosopher, what would you do? <laughs>
1: oh man. Um so in philosophy we Characterize differences between close possible worlds and far possible worlds, right? Um, And what you desire might be a far possible world, but not a nearby one. So I think that, so right before I discovered philosophy, the thing that I wanted to do was to be some kind of DJ in radio, like someone who spins music (laughs) in some way. And I think that's still a part of me. I still like to curate musical experiences for people, Um, but that's not a, job that needs to exist anymore. Um, So that would be a far away possible world, I think. I I don't think that I would have ended up becoming a DJ. The more nearby possible world, actually, realistically, if I look at what my family does and what skills I had, which were none, and the kind of socioeconomic background I came from, I probably would have gone into construction or contracting work or carpentry or something like that.
0: Do you still do that? Do you are you good at home improvement and uh, fixing things?
1: I I am I am. I've since sold my house. I actually sold a big house that I had to concentrate more on the podcast to free up money and resources. But I did a lot of you know I, I built a kitchen there and um, I built you know a kitchen island. I've I I had all of these tools. I I wanted to be just to you know pursue woodworking, which I've set aside. It's it's a part of my personality, and it's a part of what my family does, I would have hated it if I did it for a living. But I think that's the nearest possible world. That's what I would have done. It would have been carpentry of some kind.
0: Okay. So we're going to go back to philosophy for question four. What is the most important work of philosophy you've never read?
1: <laughs> it's really embarrassing to have to admit these things, isn't it?
0: That, that's why That's why the question is there, Barry. Yes.
1: I have never read any Hegel. Okay. I have never read anything. No, that's not true. I haven't read most of the things in the existentialist tradition. I have not read Nietzsche. I have not read Sartre. I have not read. I haven't even read Marx's Capital, which, you know, that's pretty embarrassing, I think, for someone with a PhD and has taught for, you know, whatever it is.
0: Well, initially, I was going to press you on how you know they're so important if you haven't read them. But actually, given the list you came, that the chances of none of those being really important is so, <laughs> s- so small that you definitely have confessed to not having read some important work of philosophy, yeah. even if we're not exactly sure which one. T-
1: T- Karen, should I be ashamed of that? Like, what, what other answers have you gotten?
0: <laughs> you know, people have really avoided that question. So uh, <laughs> there, there, have been, there have been some... No, actually... David Velleman's answer was pretty. He he revealed that he hadn't really read any of Kant's critiques, despite being thought of as one of the sort of more important Kantian-inspired moral philosophers working today. So yeah. I feel like he that rivals you in the embarrassment <laughs> stakes. But there's too much to read, so it's actually just completely impossible for everyone anyone to have read even a fraction of the philosophy that most yeah. philosophers would like to have read.
1: What what what's your answer?
0: Oh man you can't ask me that question i i um i do think the question is interesting to me in part because it requires you to judge that something is very important while you haven't read it so yeah. you have to think about how you know it's important and why what you mean by important so in a way i think heidegger's being in time for me plays that role of something that i i think in some sense feels like it must be very important it has yeah. a kind of heft and centrality to so many shifts in philosophical thinking in the last century. And that's the thing that comes to mind as the most important (laughs) work of philosophy I haven't read. But partly, I'm curious about what it it tells me or tells us about people's sense of what's important. I mean, the other follow-up question that I have in mind when people answer question four is, why not? Why haven't you read it? which I think is another another good question to ask. Sometimes the answer, I suppose, will be there's only so much time, but other times that might reveal something.
1: No, that my, my answers are more interesting than that. Um, okay. So my answer to why um, these things have got to be important is because it's pretty clear that Hegel and Marx and the existential, that have a huge impact on European thought, European politics, and a lot of the way that people even today frame debates about how to organize a society, right? And it's, yeah. just a, it's just like, so that's why it's so embarrassing to not have read them. And the reason I haven't read them, it's, it's not even just a matter of um, time. It's been more like, there are, there are some kinds of philosophical work where I, as ahead of time, I kind of assess my ability, how confident I am that I would get it correct will get it right, or 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 be able to understand it well enough on my own. And for those works, I just have so little confidence in my own ability to get it right, that it would be something I need to be guided through in a course or by an expert in order to feel confident about it, you know?
0: Yeah. I mean, that's at least part of my hesitation about being in time is that yeah. I think I'm, I'm probably not up to it without some help. And, and I'm at a point in my career where I wish I was in grad school now. you know I, now I could really get a lot out of grad school, I think. I feel like I have the preparation to to do it, but that's a, a kind of distant possibility. So we are, we are running out of time so I'm gonna ask you the final question, which is another Murdoch question. It's always a significant question to ask about any philosopher. She wrote, "What is he afraid of?" So, what are you afraid of?
1: I'm afraid of heights.
0: <laughs> okay, that's good. Um,
1: but I, I'm going. To, but for for an insight into my character, I'm going to mention. There's just so many things to be afraid of. I'm going to mention something that I've noticed being afraid of a lot in recent years. I'm afraid that my character flaws, which I've discovered a lot of since i've had a child uh, i'm afraid that my character flaws are going to take over and run my life my interactions with people with students with parents with my parents or with my mom with spouse with 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 my child with peers everything uh how i conduct my life that's one of the things i'm most afraid of
0: you know i would i would like to follow up because that sounds both relatable and slightly terrifying But instead, I'm going to leave people to wonder exactly what your character flaws are. And thank you for appearing on Five Questions. It's been really great to have you. Thanks, Kieran. And I want to recommend to everyone or anyone who's listening, Barry's podcast, Hi-Fi Nation, which splices narrative with philosophy, is hosted by Slate, is absolutely terrific. Uh, You should listen to all of the episodes, including there's a new season that's either just out or coming out soon. And thank you for listening. Hope you'll join us for another episode sometime.